Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Rola El Husseini. Rola is Associate Professor in Sociology at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Lund University. Rola, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's a pleasure. I've been reading your work for a, for a long time now, and it's had a really, really profound impact on how I how I look at various things concerning relationships between transnational groups and, and Hezbollah and, and various other things. So I'm really looking forward to, to our chat today. But as, as always, Rola, can I start by asking you what, what prompted your, your interest in, in politics and, and academia broadly, please? Oh, um, this is actually a quite funny story. I was studying English literature, of all things, and I did a master's degree in London. Okay. Um, I was actually working on Milton at the time, of all things. Um, And my experience in London was less than stellar, shall we say. Right. Um, I felt uh, that I was the victim of a form of an interesting form of xenophobia, let's call it, whereby um, I was basically told that I had no right to study what I was studying because I did not belong. Wow. And that prompted me to want to study something um, that people, you know, others would not be able to question why I chose to study it. And um, so that was basically the trigger. But I think... As someone who grew up during the civil war in Lebanon, I needed to come to terms intellectually, at least, with the things that I had lived through. Sure. Um, okay. And that was basically what started it, really. So I was dissatisfied with uh, the world of literature at that point, Um and then triggered by uh, that behavior from my then supervisor in London, I guess I decided, um, yeah, to study Middle Eastern politics. Wow, that's quite a story. Uh, I'm not sure I'd call it amusing or, or anything like that. It's it's devastating. What what was it that was that was stopping you then, as as a quote unquote outsider? Was it your your nationality or identity? What what was the thinking? Um, I don't know. All I remember, I mean, this was over 20 years ago, and all I remember is my then supervisor uh, telling me things like, um, remember, English is not your first language, it's not even your second, it's your third. Um, until the day I asked him whether my mastery of English was good enough for that master's degree, and his response was, I wish I could write any language the way you write English. Um, so I don't know what to make of that still 20 years later. Uh, but that was not, I mean, this comes to uh, a discussion about, I guess, um, gender in academia, about yeah. being a young woman, mm-hmm. uh, about how you get treated by uh, older men, um, how you're not always um, mentored and helped. Um, so I'm very careful with my young female students, and I try to uh, be as helpful to them as I can because I sure, don't want yeah. them to have to go through something like that. That's it's wrong on so many levels, Rola. 
I mean, it, it strikes me that that in some ways is a kind of sociological experience, right? What it you is. went through. So was that, was that one of the reasons that, that pushed you down the sociology route rather than politics or, or was there a different reason? Um, that was part of it. Uh, but also when I went to Paris, um, the person I wanted to work with at the time was a sociologist. Okay. And um, basically that's what kind of decided um, that particular choice. Uh, but let me specify things here by saying that I'm a political sociologist. So I kind <laughs> sure. of straddle this um, divide between politics and sociology. And and I say that because I don't like the way politics, for example, um, is taught in, say, the U.S. Um, I, I am not a big fan of the quantification of uh, politics that we see in North America and that we increasingly see in Europe. Sure. Okay, that's that's good to know. Could you just say a little bit about this this distinction between politics and sociology then, and and where you situate yourself in the gap? I mean, you you've just pointed out that you don't like the quantification of of politics, and I can certainly understand that as someone who who is a, a qualitative scholar at heart. So. Just can just elaborate a bit on that positioning intellectually, please. Um, hmm, this is something I haven't really thought about, but I think uh, sociology in many ways offer a richer theoretical framework mm-hmm. um, than political science. There is more uh, depth, I think, in the theory. Um, in politics, I feel like... Um, a lot of the theories are mid-range theories uh, and do not necessarily kind of um, go as much in depth. So if you think about it, all the big names uh, that most people refer to, whether it's Foucault or Bourdieu, um, are at heart sociologists. Yeah, so certainly. this is kind of what I'm referring to here. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. So let's go back to your journey, if that's okay, please. And you ended up in Paris working with a, a sociologist. Was this for your for your graduate studies, for your the- for your PhD? It was for a, a master's, well, the equivalent of a master's degree, what the French call a diplôme d'études approfondies, so like an MPhil in the sure. British system. And that um, so, and that solidified yeah, your interest in sociology. Those. Sorry? And that solidified your interest in, in political sociology? Yes, yes. I mean, the, my interest is basically in political sociology and in sociology of religion. Yeah. And that certainly comes out in the work that you've done on the, the sort of the political manifestation and actions of, of religious groups, let's say, I think. Yes. So you, you finished your time in Paris and then you, you went where for your graduate studies? Um, I was actually doing, I I did my graduate studies in Paris, but I had a pre-doctoral fellowship in Berlin at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, uh, Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik, under uh, the guidance of um, a wonderful scholar who I have a lot of respect for, Volker Pertes, who Mm. um, works mainly on Syria. He's currently the director of the institute itself. Um, and so I was there for three years as part of 
a team of scholars he had put together. Um, it was a mixed uh, Arab and German team to look at um, elite change in the Arab world. Um, and while I was there, this is when I, I um, wrote my PhD dissertation on um, elite politics in Lebanon, basically after the end of the civil war. So can you tell us a little bit about that then, Rola, please? I mean, we, we've heard a great deal about elite politics in recent months after the protests, but, but can you give us a bit, of, a bit of more information on the stuff that you engaged with during your, your PhD post, post-civil war? I guess that will help shed a lot of light on what's happening today. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was looking at the role of Syria, um, so if, if you remember when the civil war ended in Lebanon, it, it ended with what is called the Taif Agreement. And what Taif did was in many ways uh, solidify and um, make legal uh, Syria's presence in Lebanon. Syria had been in Lebanon since 1976 and had, like, with soldiers and had interfered in Lebanese politics since, but with the Taif Agreement and a series of about 17 other treaties, Syria's presence in Lebanon and its interference in Lebanese political affairs became legal. And what I was looking at was um, elite recruitment and formation during the period of what I call Syrian hegemony, basically between 1990 and 2005. Um, and uh, during that period, this is when we see a lot of uh, the civil war elites, shall we call them, or the warlords, um, recycle themselves, basically, reinvent themselves as politicians. And what's interesting is that these are the same people that we are seeing in power today. Um, If it's not them, it's their children. So that was the other thing I looked at is the importance of inheritance uh, and the creation of political dynasties in the Lebanese political system. Right. Um, Yeah. it's, It's fascinating. It's really, really interesting stuff. Um, can you give us some some tangible examples of, of the people that you were looking at here then? Uh, sure. I'm in the book that um, ended up being published in English in 2012, I give examples of um, different types of political elites. Um, so um, you have the political religious, uh, for example, elite like, uh, say, Hassan Nasrallah, um, the leader of Hezbollah, who is uh, not really a religious leader, even though he wears religious garb, but he doesn't have the religious credentials to be really called um, a religious leader. Uh, But he draws on some um, religious terms and ideas uh, to position himself as a, a political leader. Um, I also looked at the role of um, money uh, in politics, especially in the Sunni community. If you look at post-1990, you see that uh, the Sunni community is the one that saw a lot of new names uh, emerging uh, on the 
political scene and that most of these um, newcomers were businessmen who had made their money usually overseas. Uh, the most important being, of course, uh, then Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, yeah. who had made his money in Saudi. Um, and these men, whether it's Rafiq Hariri or then later on uh, Prime Minister uh, Mikati um, or um, another minister, cabinet minister, Mohammed Safadi, um, they all came to politics through business. Uh, so they instrumentalized their money um, to get into politics. And now looking at Michael Bloomberg and the American elections, right, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of familiarity there. Yeah, I can imagine. Rola, I've got two questions at, at, at this point, if I may. And sure. one is, how do these these businessmen that have come from overseas interact with the, the, the former warlords that you talk about that go on to have a really important role in, in Lebanese politics broadly? And second, can you just say a little bit more about about the role of money and how that shapes identity, please. Because we've, we've heard about it, say, um, through the work of Reinhard Linders, who's talking about, mm -hmm. about the, the role of money and corruption in reinforcing identities. But I wonder if you can say a little bit about it from your research as well, please. Sure. Um, so the first question was about the interaction of yeah. these businessmen with warlords. I think um, in many ways they managed it quite well, especially Rafiq Hariri. Um, he, he basically bought or co-opted any opposition. That was my feeling. Uh, he um, allowed people to be corrupt, to do whatever they wanted, to line their pockets, um, to get his way. Um, and he managed to get on the political scene uh, through the so-called Hariri Foundation, which was a foundation that gave money to um, young people who wanted to um, go to college. So he subsidized several thousand, tens of thousands of young people going to college um, and, and paid for their education. And what's interesting, and this is where we talk about identity, is that contrary to other groups, the Hariri Foundation, at least at its beginning, was um, not trying to um, reinforce a sectarian identity. Um, it gave money to basically everyone, regardless of sectarian affiliation. And that actually created resentment among the Sunni community. Interesting. Uh, because they didn't understand why Hariri um, was doing that. Um, they saw that other community groups only gave to their own, and they were quite resentful that he gave money to Shia or to Christians, etc. Um, so, but when, when I talked to... Um, to former Prime Minister Fouad Senora about some of this, he said something uh, which has resonated with me since, and uh, that's, he said that um, the Sunnis are a majority in the Arab world, that basically 
uh, it's a, he, I think he used the term a sea of Sunnis, if I remember well. And they don't have this minority feeling of being threatened or of being um, under pressure. And that this is basically what um, kind of guides the way they think. And I, I guess that's a bit true for Rafiq Hariri at the time. Um, he was coming not from a minority perspective, but really from a majoritarian perspective of, you know, we are the majority in the Arab world. We are going, we don't feel threatened and we should create um, good relationships with our neighbors um, and uh, compatriots. And I'm not sure if he would feel the same today in Lebanon. Yeah. Um, I think things have changed a lot since. Sure. And I, I do think that the Sunnis do not have this feeling of being a majority or of being, you know, um, kind of okay in their environment. Um, now the discourse, especially among the Sunni community in northern Lebanon, has really changed. And um, most of the people I talk to feel a lot uh, under siege, um, even, uh, especially among the Islamists um, in northern Lebanon. Sure. I should just point out that this is, I assume, taken from your, your book, Pax Syriana, Elite Politics in Post-War Lebanon. Yeah, some of this is. Sure. Um, uh, others, other stuff I've said is actually uh, kind of my thoughts based Fantastic. on okay. uh, recent interviews I've done in Lebanon for Amazing. another project on Sunni Islamists um, in, in Lebanon. That's really interesting. I'd like to, to touch on that in a minute, if I may. But just for anyone who's not read your book, Rola, I think we should we should give it uh, proper reference and acknowledgement because it's wonderful. And I think really, really fascinating in terms of, of shedding light on this this incredibly important time of Lebanese politics. So Pax Syriana, Elite Politics in Post-War Lebanon. And it was published in English in 2012. And it came out with... Um, Syracuse University Press. Thank you very much. Amazing. So if we can just move on swiftly, I, I want to touch a little bit on some of the stuff that, that I first read of yours, Roller, if that's okay. And that was concerning mm -hmm. the... Um, the axis of refusal and resistance and the 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 cross state networks that that you identify and and others of course um, Syria Hezbollah and Hamas I found that mm -hmm. fascinating so can you just tell us a little bit about what prompted your interest in in that angle and and what you were trying to do with it please. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, while doing my research on elites in Lebanon, um, I could not, of course, avoid working on Hezbollah and doing interviews with Hezbollah parliamentarians in the early 2000s was a fascinating experience because yeah. they were the most professional, the most prepared of my interviewees. Um, and they were also the most respectful. Um you know, when you're a woman, uh, especially when you're a young woman, and I was quite young then, doing field work, um, you, you face a lot of innuendos and forms of sexual harassment. 
but never with the Hezbollah people. So I found them fascinating as, as a group. And their professionalism really impressed me because they were the only ones who would receive me on time or give me the full hour or hour and a half that I requested. Wow, okay. Uh, and would treat me with a lot of respect. Sure. Um, and so that kind of triggered my interest in the group as a whole. And then uh, I started being interested in their relationships with other groups. Um, of course, Iran and Syria are um, kind of the logical two partners for Hezbollah when one talks about Hezbollah because Iran basically subsidized and more or less created Hezbollah. And Syria has been a loyal ally since the late 1980s um, because money and weapons transit to Hezbollah through Damascus. Um, and, and we see you know, how keen Hezbollah is on this alliance with Syria as it ended up propping up the Syrian regime and, and fighting with the Syrian regime um, against the um, uprising in Syria since 2011. So, but what I found more interesting was the relationship with Hamas. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I started exploring um, in uh, an article that came out in um, 2008, I think. Um, and it was on the idea of resistance and jihad. And what I was interested in at the time was looking at how uh, the two main Lebanese ayatollahs, Ayatollah Fadlallah and Ayatollah Shamsuddin, understood the concept of jihad and martyrdom. And I was quite surprised during um, the analysis of the documents I was reading at the time to uh, realize that there was a move of ideas from not just from Iran to Lebanon, but from Lebanon to the Palestinian territories, especially this concept of, of martyrdom. Um, the first, I mean, I was able to trace it at the time, the first use of the term martyrdom to the Iran-Iraq war and to the besiege being sent on the field, basically to trigger landmines right. before conventional troops um advanced. And then we see a shift from that to suicide bombers in southern Lebanon, first by communists and then being adopted by Shia Islamist groups and given the same type of justifications that we see in the Iranian case. And then it moves to Hamas um, and th this idea of, of suicide bombing. So this, this move uh, of a concept that would traditionally in Islam be unacceptable, namely killing oneself, um, and how it moves from Shiism to Sunnism, that was something that fascinated me at the time. Um, so this led me to explore some of these linkages between these groups. And we see that um, after some ups and downs, the relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah is still going strong today. Hmm. That surprises many people, I think, given the the construction and 
um, ongoing reproduction of this sort of sectarian narrative that pits Sunni against Shia. But how is it that that Hezbollah Hamas are able to to circumvent this increasingly polarizing divide? Um, this I think uh, this is best explained in. Uh, a piece that I have that is um, coming out soon Wonderful. with um, it's a it's in with Mediterranean politics. I think it's um, part of a special forum that was organized by Morten Volbjorn and, and Yerowin Gunning, um, and the the piece is titled "Political Exigency or Religious Affinity: Sectarianism in the Contemporary Arab World." Um, and in this piece, I try to show that um, sectarianism basically is not as easy as it's often portrayed in Western media or by Western pundits, um, that uh, sometimes uh, political exigencies, political necessity trumps a sectarian affiliation, uh, that just being Shia doesn't mean you're going to side with Iran as being Sunni does not mean you're going to automatically side with Saudi Arabia. Hmm. Um, So I think this is the main point here, that things are a bit more complex than we think they are looking from outside, um, and that we should not assume that just because one group is quote-unquote Shia Therefore, they're going to be with Iran. This is my main criticism, for example, of people who think of the Houthis in Yemen um, as Shia, because they're not. I mean, they're Zaydis, which is, yes, a form of Shiism, but very different uh, from Twelver Shiism, the, the type of Shiism we find in Iran. Um, it's actually in its religious practice much closer to Sunni Islam. Yeah, of course. So this kind of shorthand um, saying these are Shia and therefore they're pro-Iranian is, I think, problematic uh, and becomes more or less sometimes a self-fulfilling prophecy because in many ways you are throwing these groups in the arms of Iran. Yeah, I would totally agree with you on that, Rola. Um, Can I just... Ask another point, another question on this, though. I mean, that it strikes me that there must be something more to this relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah than purely things being more complex than than we think. I mean, there must be some some shared points of of resonance that help the two course, to to continue course. their relationship. Is it is it purely resistance? Is there something else to it? No, of course, they share a worldview which is very much uh, anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist. Um, it was clear in Hezbollah's um, open letter, uh, even clear in its 2009 manifesto. Um, it's also clear in, in Hamas's um, charter in, in newer documents. Yeah. Um, so, yes, they share a worldview. And that's what that's why I'm saying that political necessity is what drives uh, Hamas in Hezbollah's arms, despite the religious divide. Sure. Okay. Thank you. That that's useful to know. Rola, we've taken up a lot of your time already, but if I may ask one final question. 
Sure. Uh, it goes back to your your new project about um, about Islamists and and Sunni Islamists in Lebanon. I wonder, given the the changing political scene in Lebanon and and the changing dynamics of the region recently, where do the Islamists find themselves in the in the contemporary Lebanese state? Can you give us a bit of a teaser for this new project and tell us a bit about what it's going to be, please? Sure. Well, actually, I started this this new project in 2014. And um, since I took my job um, at Lund University, I've kind of put it on the back burner. So it's still there, but I have not been working on it. I've been working on another project right. on gender, actually, uh, since I got here. Um, but this project basically, um, I started it at the height of, of the ISIS scare, when there was discussion of ISIS spreading into Lebanon, of Tripoli, uh, the city in northern Lebanon, becoming um, basically part of the ISIS emirate um, and of you know ISIS having its eye on Tripoli and northern Lebanon because it needed a port. It could not be a landlocked state if it wanted to be a viable state. Yeah. So that's kind of what triggered the interest in this. And I did, um, first of all, sort of a mapping of the groups in, in northern Lebanon. I wanted to understand who's who. Um, and um, I realized that a lot of sympathy that there was a lot of sympathy, especially among some of the Salafis, not necessarily Salafi jihadis, because I did not interview any of those, but just regular scholastic Salafis, the Salafis that usually avoid politics, um, that they were quite um, sympathetic to ISIS. And that was, among others, due to what they saw as their suffering under the government in Lebanon um, since the mid 2000s. Um, they, you know, as you might have heard, there are lots of uh, Sunni Islamists in Lebanese prisons. Some of them have uh, finished um, their prison term, but they're still in prison. Some of them have been in prison for several years and have not been tried. So there is a big problem there. And um, these Islamists often draw a comparison between themselves and Hezbollah. And basically, like, we are persecuted and Hezbollah is the persecutor, is often yeah. what is said. Um, so basically, that's what I was interested in at the time. Um, of course, now with um, the disappearance of ISIS, at least in its latest incarnation. Um, this is less interesting. Um, I am still interested in the Sunni Islamism. and I'll probably go back to them after I'm done with my current project. But I think what I want to look at next time is, is more um, the humanitarian aspect um, of Sunni Islamism is how money flows from Saudi Arabia and Kuwait into yeah. Lebanon to fund 
schools or universities or NGOs. Um, I'm I'm doing a paper uh, in April with um, it's a workshop, the ECPR workshops in in Toulouse, and I'm I'm presenting a paper that is based on that field work, looking at these NGOs. So maybe when that paper has been taken apart by the colleagues at the workshop, <laughs> I'll have a better idea where to go with it. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I look forward to, to reading that. I should apologize that we've not even had a chance to discuss gender yet today, because I know you've been doing a lot of work on gender recently with with a colleague of mine at Lancaster, Rahaf. Um but yes. I hope we'll be able to get you on again, Roller, and we can pick up on the, the gender theme from today, because I think that's a really important one, particularly in the study of sectarianism. But I can't take up any more of your time, I'm afraid. It's been wonderful to talk with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Roller. And as always, thanks for listening. Until next time.